You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Uh, welcome to Unsiloed. I'm here today with Todd Cashton, who is a professor of psychology at George Mason University, also the author of a bunch of books. His most recent book is called The Art of Insubordination, How to Dissent and Defy Effectively. And then he's got a couple older books, which I think actually each one builds on the previous one. I think the oldest one I have here is, is called Curious, Discover the Missing Ingredient to a Fulfilling Life. And then you're the co-author of a book called The Upside of Your Dark Side. Why? Being your whole self, not just your good self, drives success and fulfillment. Welcome, Todd. Thank you. And thanks for noticing it. It is kind of a trilogy between the three of them. Yeah. And you have a new book coming out on parenting, and we'll be sure to dig into that a little bit. But, you know, I remember when I was in college, I wrote a, a paper, like it was my honors thesis, on the philosopher as physician. Back in ancient times, I think the philosophers were kind of the doctors of the soul, so to speak. But I think in today's age, it's kind of been reversed. I mean, I think the clinical psychologists like yourself are in many ways the philosophers of our time because you dig so deep into right what it is that makes for a fulfilling and happy and comfortable life. And of course, for many people, those are all the same thing, right? So economists, I think, are probably the most guilty of conflating all of these things which have some desirable characteristics, right? So happiness, pleasure, comfort, fulfillment, they all are conflated into this positive valence. It's so obviously simplistic that anybody who spends just a few minutes thinking about it realizes that these are all different and that there are trade-offs and it's not really clear what it is that we're supposed to be maximizing. And I think you dug into this in all of your books and the positive psychology movement has been around now for a couple decades. And, and I think the positive psychology movement sometimes falls into that same trap. And I think you're trying to push the positive psychology movement towards something that's a little bit more nuanced and a little more, more complex. So can you tell us a bit about how has the positive psychology movement advanced our understanding of the human experience and how has it kind of been limited in its understanding of the human experience? Yeah, there's a lot there. I mean, in some, I mean, in some ways, scientists such as myself are going back to theorists like Carl Jung, Karen Hornet, and Daniel Berlin, who should be more famous, but he's my favorite psychologist from Toronto, who started the study of curiosity, took it seriously. And to some degree, we're going, we're going back and saying, you know, wholeness is where the action is. And then when we try to discard parts of ourselves, such as selfishness is a bad thing or low-grade narcissism is a bad thing, which we can dive into, or low grades of psychopathy is is a bad thing. And then and this, if you follow the science and you really think of, of human behavior, you realize is, would you ever want to raise your kids where they were never selfish? And the answer is no. It's, it's some, somewhere in the middle, and it's unclear where, is sort of where the, you know, Aristotle's golden mean is, is where you want your kids when they enter into friendships to make sure they spend time also with themselves. And if they enter a romantic relationship, you don't want them to get entangled where they lose their identity. And I think as adults, we need to reflect on what we say is a strength, what we say is a virtue, what we say is a vice. Um, Pause psychology, which has really been going on since Abraham Maslow, so it really starts in kind of the 60s, was a corrective of that we're focusing too much on pathology. There's mental health crisis in America. I mean, Gregory, no more time than now. I mean, we have the highest prevalence rate lifetime of psychological disorders in the history of humanity. You're looking at we are a few percentage points away from saying statistically it is normal to have a psychological disorder as opposed to being psychologically healthy. And that's that says something about what it is to be human in our current environment. And so positive psychology was saying while all that is happening simultaneously, we still want to cultivate creativity. We still want to make sure while we have programs for kids that are developmentally disadvantaged, we also want to cultivate gifted programs and talented programs and make sure that we find their potential as well. And, you know, one of the things society often 
with this negativity bias to try to really eliminate or mitigate the negatives is the first thing that disappears are what are considered the extras. So the gifted, talented programs disappear because there's so many kids with learning disabilities. We focus on trying to increase admissions for everybody. And then what does that do to the upper 10% of people who have precocious mathematical abilities, emotional intelligence, and psychological skills. So positive psychology was really useful. Like, let's study what those humans are like. Like, what makes exceptional leaders? And where they started to fail, and that's probably a hyperbolic statement, is people got siloed into realizing, hey, I can get my TED Talk and my brand if I focus on this thin slice of human behavior. So you've got, you know, I was the curious, I've been, some people call me the curiosity person. And you've got, you know, Angela Duckworth is the grit person. And Michael McCulloch is the forgiveness person. And Robert Emmons is the gratitude person. And the problem with that is, once you have this psychological conflict of interest to focus on one slab of human behavior, you start missing the jagged profile and the complexity of what it is to be a human. And then there's so many situations and environments where your humanity, what, what comes to the forefront, what gets pushed to the background and those interactions between them. So that dynamism is what I've been trying to capture with my writing and my research. Well, I think the psychology literature is very similar to the business literature in that the way to get famous is to be a one-trick pony and say, hey, here's this attribute and, you know, we need more of it. <laughs> here's this attribute and we need less of it. But the nonlinearity and saying, hey, you know, we need just the right amount of this is, is a little bit more complicated and saying, you know, hey, we need this portfolio that is made up of a whole bunch of different things. That's a more complicated message. It requires a little bit more attention. It requires a little bit no more nuance and it requires a little bit more effort on the part of the listener to really comprehend. And so this idea of balance seems like a classic philosophical thing when it comes to raising your children, but also raising yourself. I mean, because at the end of the day, I think we're kind of raising ourselves right, for, for our entire lifetimes. I like that, that phrasing, that framework. And I also believe is, I mean, I've been, I've been given mentors have told me over the years is like, listen, your messages are too complicated. Like you, if you simplify it down, then more people would tend to it. And then my response is, it's not been defensive is I want to capture how the very bizarre convoluted mosaic of what makes a person. So you got the life history of positive and negative life events. Mostly we focus on adversity as opposed to triumphs and achievements. You've got your temperament, you've got your personality, you've got your relationships, you have your resources. And then in certain situations, you can extract those resources. And sometimes you're under-resourced because you haven't slept, your nutrition's bad, your exercise is poor. Well, that's a complicated equation of studying is like, what will Gregory Todd and anyone listening, like how will they behave in a situation? But predicting that is what people really want to know, which is if I get five hours of sleep and I typically get eight, and because I have, I'm raising my kids alone as a single parent over the past two weeks, how can I find time for creativity in my life, in my work, in the art that I do outside of work? These are the questions people want to know. And, and I think Trying to just ask, is curiosity a better predictor than grit of academic performance doesn't capture the questions of why we go into psychology and the questions that people want to understand. In your book, you refer to this book, The Upside of Your Dark Side, as sort of an anti-happiness book. Now, look, this whole country is built on the pursuit of happiness. How can you go out and how can you be against happiness? And I guess you could argue that if happiness was better understood, like there's, there's a version of happiness that is sufficiently complex that, of course, we should pursue it. But that's kind of not what most people mean when they talk about happiness. It seems to be a conception that's gotten narrower and narrower over the years, and it's almost equated with a lack of discomfort at this point. So how is it that people get happiness wrong, or how is it that their vision of the good life is somehow one that's both unattainable and frustrating and unfulfilling. If I said it was an anti-happiness book, I will pull back and maybe that was a, a marketing gimmick and say that we have we have 
put too much of our effort and emphasis on one element of the good life. So scientists have really uncovered those three. And this starts, as you were saying in the beginning, this starts with, with philosophers, starting with Aristotle and his concept of the good life, where you have a happy life where you're talking about joy, pleasure, or it could be the low energy emotions that Marcus Aurelius talked about, which is tranquility and equanimity. So that's one element. And in some ways, that way is, I want to have a good time. I want to have fun. And then so you have hedonia the, versus eudaimonia. Yeah. What's well, what's interesting about that is when you talk about hedonics and eudaimonia, they really correlate around 0.9, which is basically subjectively, it's the same thing. It's almost as if if you were to spend 24 hours, and we have cameras everywhere now on people's doorbells and you know in stores, and you observe someone, you can tell like, is this person living a happy life? Are they laughing a lot? Are they hugging a lot? Like, do they seem joyous? Is there is there vitality in their movements? So that's one element of the good life. Another element, which we you know my lab, the well-being lab, is really focused on, is the meaningful life, and this is a life of significance. To what degree are you a non-expendable unique unique entity that offers something to the world. Like it's good that you were alive and you're going to do something with this one life you have. So this is about like, I want to do something that matters. And if and at the highest level is you found a purpose, something to channel all of your energies and all of your strivings and all of your ambitions towards something that is, you know, really profound. But there's another, there's a third form of the good life, which you can call the psychologically rich life. And this kind of captures my first book, where you're talking about variety, novelty, seeking new perspectives, traveling, meeting new types of people. You know, really the opposite of an echo chamber is you are constantly trying to grow, expand, and explore and discover things. And this this type of the good life is I wanna I wanna grow and discover and learn. And so you can learn. You could try to do something that matters. You could try to find pleasure. And I don't think we should be constantly trying to define what we're going to do in terms of what our good life is going to be. I think it's as, as you have this knowledge of these are three ways of approaching your life. It also goes down to the three ways of approaching the year, three ways of approaching your day, three ways of approaching a social interaction. And with that, it's kind of cool to think about to some degree there, you know, here's here's three nice options and neither is necessarily better or worse. It's what's going to work for you for your goals right now. Do you want meaning? Do you want happiness? Or do you want psychological richness? When we think about that third thing, this life of curiosity, you point out that anxiety can get in the way, or at least a, an anxiety that is poorly managed can get in the way. And, and you talk about the status quo bias, and you say that, I mean, to be curious is to embrace uncertainty to some degree, to embrace the idea that you don't actually know everything and that you haven't actually experienced everything worth experiencing. And so when these levels of anxiety get kind of ratcheted up, and certainly we've been through a couple of years where, well, actually, I mean, it doesn't seem to ever end, right? Whether it's COVID or whether it's mass shootings or we're basically sipping at the fountain of anxiety for many of us. This, it seems to shut down our curiosity, right? It makes us seek out the comfort of certainty of pre-existing thoughts and so forth. So in order to be curious, do we first have to start by learning how to manage that anxiety, which would otherwise shut it down? There's this great work by Paul Sylvia where each of us asks these two questions and it's kind of on the fringes of conscious awareness. So it's almost implicit. It's automatic. It's fast. It's milliseconds. You're not attending to these questions. How you answer these two questions determines whether or not you're going to be curious. Like in this conversation right now, my answer to these two questions determines like am I actually interested in Gregory's question? So the first one we kind of know from the dictionary definitions of curiosity is this stimuli, is the, are these questions, these comments by Gregory, are they novel, are they uncertain, are they complex, are they ambiguous, like, are they intriguing? So if yes, I'm on the path of being curious. But there's a second question that everyone tends to miss. And the second question is, do I believe that I can handle this ambiguity, this uncertainty, this complexity and novelty? If you don't say yes to both, you're not going to be curious in the moment. And I think people forget this. They think you just need the novelty. You just need a conflict of, hey, I just, I'm approaching somebody. They're wearing a t-shirt of my favorite band. 
do I go up and say say something or do I avoid because I don't want to be rejected? Those conflicts there, the only way you get curious is if you believe that you can handle the uncertainty that you don't know what the answer is going to be. And that doesn't mean that you don't feel a sting if that person looks at you for a second, shakes their head and walks away. So you, you still can experience rejection, but it's that you're willing to take a step forward despite the presence of anxiety is part and parcel of what it means to be curious in the moment. And we live in a culture right now where people in general are psychologically weaker than prior generations. And there's, there's lots of confluence of data, but you don't need data really to kind of to, to notice is that people are a little bit more hesitant about talking to people face to face. They're a little bit more uncomfortable about eye-to-eye -eye conversations, disagreeing with people, especially publicly, especially in group situations, especially in the workplace. We have like a, 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 social, a societal deficit in courage, especially moral courage. And that's, why, that's why we put on a pedestal people that are whistleblowers and are willing to say something. It's, it's because most people aren't able to do it. They have the capacity, but it's that part of the puzzle is can I get through the social persecution that might arise if I say or do something that the people that I care about or who I want to care about me might be you know, indignant about or upset about? And a lot of people don't want to deal with that social persecution. Well, I mean, curiosity, I mean, this is like you stick your hand in the drawer and you don't know what's in the drawer, right? And there could be a you know, sharp knife in the drawer, right? We know that curiosity kills the cat and so forth. And so Presumably, for someone to be curious, they have to have some confidence that the curiosity will not kill them. It won't hurt them. I mean, it may be uncomfortable, and, you know, they may make some mistakes, but it's not going to kill them. And I think of this in terms of just in the work environment and the family environment. You know, I've always been someone who's just insanely curious. I'm still teach a new class every year. <laughs> you know, if I could get a new degree every year, I'd go get a new degree every year. But if someone comes up to me and says, hey, you know, I worked in restaurants and someone come up to me and say, if you do this, it'll take you less time. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's so cool. But then I would turn to the next person and I would say, hey, you know, if you do this, and they'd be like, stop lecturing me. Where does that come from, that perception that new information is a threat, particularly if it's coming from another person? I think it seems like there's a power relationship or someone's status is, is in question if they're on the receiving end of, of new information or new ideas. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple ways to play with this. I mean, one, we, we, as you're alluding to, we can't ignore these power hierarchies. These status hierarchies are everywhere. I mean, just, I'm a guest on your show. So there's an automa automatic hierarchy of, you know, you're the host and I'm the guest. So you have more power than wait, me. Wait, 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 which, which way does it go, though? I mean, I don't <laughs> I think it's, it's the host because it's, it's, I'm in your neighborhood. You can just turn off my mic. Now, that's a, a really flat power hierarchy. So, you know, some people would take advantage of it and cut in and make sure that I stay on course with exactly what you want that happens there. And other people allow more leeway and freedom that happens there. But, you know, we have these when we have a social gathering. There are some people that are more socially attractive is that when they tell a story or open their mouths, people put their phones away and they're more apt to listen. And it's really useful to be a very keen observer of human behavior and notice that those hierarchies exist. I've been at the same university working there for 18 years. And so I am keenly aware of who, when they speak, despite the quality of their idea, as the messenger, people, you know, they start talking to their neighbor next to them at a faculty meeting. Like these, you know, these are full-grown adults with, you know, making six-figure salaries and they won't listen to them. And then someone, because they are physically attractive, they are funny, they're playful, they're really, you know, they're really agreeable, all sorts of different dimensions that make someone's attractive. People they think are cool or popular. They speak, their ideas aren't as good, but they get the, the a more receptive audience. So you start paying attention to this. You start realizing that there, there are patterns. You know, we know that women tend to have a less receptive audience compared to men in the workplace. And despite all of the social media comments and all of the campaigns that happen there, we need to not just bring people in. We have to notice what these social norms are. You know, these social norms are power hierarchies. If there is more power and potential for you as an individual to benefit from being receptive to someone, you have a leaning towards that person's ideas. And if someone's a dissenter and they can be pigeonholed as disagreeable or disgruntled, you don't 
it's harder for them to make sure that they actually get a receptive audience for their message. Now, this is irrespective of the quality of what people say. You know, and another angle of this in terms of of why people are defensive to new ideas is our brains are cognitive misers. They don't want to use cortical activity and energy unless it's a life or death situation or there's a mating situation. That's that's you know, it's the unfortunate byproduct of evolution. And so when it comes down to the idea of learning a new language or learning a new instrument or me hearing your stories about your travels to, you know, Uganda and Sri Lanka, my brain will tell me, listen, you only have so much cortical room in a single day. Are you, this is not the stuff to take in. Like save it for something that's going to help your career or make you more attractive to other people. Well, I think both noticing and motivate, I mean, attention and motivation seem to be two things that you spend a lot of time thinking about and just what you've just described. I mean, it's clear that you're a noticer, but you talk a lot about, you know, noticing one's internal state. So it's not just about noticing kind of your impact on the world, but noticing the impact of the world on you. And I think you talk about emotional labeling and how important this is. And I found this interesting because I know that when you go to the doctor, and you feel sick or whatever, the minute the doctor puts a name on it, it's like, oh, okay, you can kind of relax. Even if that name is something that has zero meaning, like anxiety of unknown etiology, like, oh, okay, well, that that's good. You know, that's one step closer to dealing with it. This seems to be some version of mindfulness, of paying attention. Doesn't paying attention or noticing come at the expense of other things, right? Whether it's at the expense of concentration or at the expense of focus. What's the kind of optimal amount of attention that we need to pay? As economists, I always ask the question, are we on the frontier thinking about trade-offs or are most of us in a world where we can probably get more of something without giving up really much of anything? I love that you go in this direction. I mean, you stole the word right out of my mouth. I mean, I mean, this is exactly how I have to think. It's, there's always a psychological trade-off for everything that you decide to engage in. And so for emotional labeling, we just kept finding this incredible finding, study after study. I mean, one of my favorite ones is with Nathan DeWall, who was at University of Kentucky, where we had couples that were engaging in a disagreement about a very potent, problematic topic. And we checked in of if we train them to label their emotions, like what exactly are they feeling about this topic before they get into a discussion, ends up that they are less likely to engage in verbal aggression and start yelling, screaming, and, and you know, making a, just calling the person like pejorative names. And when you engage in this emotion, very precise description of what you're feeling. I'm feeling sad and anxious. I'm not feeling angry. I'm not feeling irritable. I'm not feeling tired and I'm not feeling guilty. If you can describe with the precise feelings, it gives you a foothold into, huh, like why am I feeling sad next? I'm feeling sad because I'm not living up to your standards, which is very different than feeling angry as if you're making this a high maintenance social interaction and I want to go out and go play pickleball and now we're complaining about the same topic we always do. So if you can discern that it's sadness about not living up to them as opposed to they're an obstruction to something else you want to be doing, that gives you a nice little stranglehold into having problem-solving abilities and talk about it more than just trying to win win that situation as opposed to lose. And it has a carryover effect into your other social interactions. You're less likely to be upset if someone bumps into you. You're less likely to be upset if a stranger ends up like using profanity as you're walking with your kid into Target. So it's really beneficial to be clear at describing what your internal states, what they mean to you. The beauty of this one this particular psychological strategy is it requires such little effort expenditure. So the trade-off conversation is a really good one, but this one is, it's very quick. It's free lunch. Yeah, yeah, free right. Lunch. Yeah. yeah, right. So there are other ones, for example, self-distancing is a strategy that I talk about. Um, that's a lot of uh, Ethan Cross's work at University of Michigan, where you're talking about, okay, I'm not feeling like I want to exercise at 7 o'clock this morning, but I want to give a gift to future Todd, who's going to be at the Outer Banks Beach in two and a half months. So as I think about what would future Todd want, I, and I'm, I'm going to sacrifice present Todd to get there, that requires a little bit more energy because I'm thinking about multiple selves. 
So the price of that is, is just as you described. As I'm thinking about that, if I'm driving, it's the same thing as texting while I'm driving. I'm not paying attention to the road. And if it's a conversation, it's just like looking at my iPhone where I'm not paying attention to what someone say. I'm lost in mental chatter and I'm not fully present. And I think you, you raise a good point that I don't think people do enough with, which is the upside of some of these states does have a downside. And, you know, there's, you know, and, there, and these psychological costs have to be taken into consideration when you decide, is it worth using this strategy or not? Well, there was buried in, in one of your books, there was this phrase, feeling fast and slow. And I thought, oh, now that, that's the name of a book, <laughs> you know, because we, you know, we've got thinking fast and slow. And I, and I think there, the contrast is between your system one and your system two. And you mentioned feeling fast and, and slow. And, and that, in other words, these feelings, whether they're anger or guilt or jealousy or anxiety or fear, these are not bad things. But what you want is you want to, on the one hand, calibrate them correctly. And then on the other, you want to use them. You want to get the most out of them. All of them are there for a reason. All of them contain information. I teach data science and I always use example. I talk about confusion matrices and false positives and false negatives. And sometimes people are like, okay, I get it, right? You're talking about coronavirus tests or whatever. But then I, I talk about emotions and I say, look, if you're experiencing fear, there's a false positive where you experience fear and there's nothing to be afraid of and a false negative when there's something to be afraid of and you're not afraid of it. The cost of a false negative is probably a lot higher than the cost of a false positive. So you're probably experiencing a, a lot more fear than you would if you were trying to optimize accuracy. So can we go back and just say, okay, is this really the level of sensitivity that I want? And if it is, then fine. Like I'll, I'll make sure that I, when the smoke detector goes off, I'll just go and make sure that there's no smoke before I whip out the hoses and call the fire department and so forth. Is that sort of what we'd call feeling slow? Just being a little more conscious of the system? I really like these economic approaches to psychology. Because if you think about it, most look, just take the most mundane emotion from this morning today. I walk my nine-year-old to school every morning, and then I'm coming back by myself. usually talk to a parent for a little bit, and then I kind of trail off for 100, 150 yards walk to myself. There's, I almost always have a feeling of I should just go into my pocket and grab my phone and go because I'm a little bit bored. And then I'm reminded of the benefit of boredom. And so I just kind of just take my hand out of my pocket, look around and be like, kind of notice something interesting, hear some bird sounds, look at the trees, how are they different from yesterday? And again, this gets back into a mindfulness part, also a, a savoring piece, but it's also the start of intentional habits where I'm going to train myself moment by moment, just like going to the gym and building a biceps, train it that boredom is not an emotion to escape and I can sit with it. And with that, I'm building my distress tolerance and there will be another day, a rainy day in the future where I'm going to have be traveling to Japan or another country and I'm going to have culture shock and I can't, I don't know what anyone's going to say. I'm experiencing this physiological tension and this training regimen will hopefully carry over and I can tolerate more distress and have useful, rich experiences as opposed to viewing it as an aversive experience. And I think there's something really powerful about training yourself so that each moment during your day when you feel discomfort of can you sit with it can you take another perspective and do something with it as opposed to trying to escape it because this will make you a better human being to deal with other humans and with setbacks and difficulties in your life you know when did we become so uncomfortable with discomfort because <laughs> i think at one point you talk about you have to learn to get more comfortable with discomfort which sounds i guess paradoxical but i think everyone who reads that knows what you're saying where did this come from and and in particular right not just for ourselves but for our children like when did people start to think that it was a, a good idea to protect their children from discomfort and to not just be helicopter parents but snowplow parents <laughs> Where did yeah. this come from? Yeah. So I'm not going to blame it on the social media age just yet because I think you have to go back a little bit further because you got to think about World War II families, Korean War families. I mean, families that were living in the middle of the Civil War. These were not times of comfort. In 1950, I think the, the Gallup poll is 18% of people were taking daily showers. These were difficult times just, just for the smell in your household, much less first dates. 
I think one of the challenges is that there's rising expectations about what our days are supposed to be like and what our lives are supposed to be contributing to. And there's no question that the culture, the self-help and the self-improvement culture, while it has benefits, has constantly raised the expectations of, am I maximizing my potential, right? As opposed to satisficing and living a life that's, it's, I have talents, I have potentials, I'm using them, I'm not famous, I'm not the world's leading expert in something, but I've done good. Like, I'm doing good. I'm doing good enough as a parent. We're trying to be like the best parent possible, the best romantic partner possible. We want to transcend our ego and read, you know, we want to download everything about stoicism. It's like really popular in Silicon Valley and the world right now. I want to master my emotions and make sure that I don't have any unnecessary reactivity to stressful life events, even though. As you open up with, you know, we have a COVID pandemic, we have political polarization, you know, you know, we have people, we have French, old friendships, which should be some of the greatest resources that we have in life. People that knew us when we were just, you know, derelict teenagers and now we're adults losing those friendships over disagreement over a political issue that really we shouldn't even be having a conversation about because we're not in politics. Um, the expectations of seeking self-transcendence ensures that when you evaluate how you're performing or how things are going on a given day, with those high standards, we start to have very a, a great deal of difficulty in we judge ourselves harshly, we judge our other people harshly, and we judge our kids harshly because we have these high expectations. And, and if you deconstruct the happiest countries in the world, mostly Scandinavian countries and Costa Rica, so these are great landscapes. Now they tend to be homogeneous countries. So they have, you know, they don't have the ethnic and the racial diversity of like an America does. But one thing that they have is they tend to be communal cultures. And in these cultures, they tend to have very low expectations. And so in Denmark, for example, there's a really cool cultural norm that I would love to see in the US where particularly women that are in the aftermath of divorce, they have these little communities where houses that are built for those women and their kids to live in. So they're basically co-parenting together. And so for those that go to work, there's always someone to take care of the kids. For those that want to stay at home, there's plenty of opportunity for that as well. They combine their resources. And when the kids are asked who your parents are in interviews, they normally say, I have like six or seven moms. And how could you not look at that and say, wow, that's something societally we should steal because these are the culture is designed to have a catch net where the expectations for high ambition is secondary to having a nice psychological existence where you feel fulfilled as opposed to your your experience in this high levels of triumph all the time. But I mean, those seem to me two separate things, right? One is this idea of perfectionism or optimization. But then the other is like, what is it that you're optimizing for your kids and for yourself? Are you optimizing comfort or are you optimizing fulfillment or adventure or whatever? So I agree with you on the perfectionism point, but specifically, what is it? Why is it that we think that the good life is the, the life without discomfort or the life without serious challenges or the life without tension and anxiety and unpleasant feelings, negative affect and so forth. So the way that I, I can coalesce those two ideas, and I, I totally get your skepticism, is what is the easiest road to ambition, success, and optimizing your potential? It's to start working on the thing that you're already good with. So you're talking about trying to avoid being a white belt and a beginner and, to start, and trying to, the places where you start on second base in terms of your temperament, your physical ability, your emotional ability, your intellectual powers, you gravitate toward the things you're good at where you get praise and accomplishments as opposed to just trying to acquire knowledge, wisdom, and social capital. And as long as we as a society put extra emphasis on what you accomplish socially, emotionally, and intellectually, you are designing a cultural system where people are not going to start from scratch all over again. I mean, I can I can think just this is a as a small mundane personal example. At the age of when I turned 40, I remember that my kids were really into skateboarding and I had never skateboarded in my entire life or surfed and I was just I was like, "Listen, if you guys are going to pick it up, I'll pick it up." It was an embarrassing mess. I, I have a, <laughs> I have a neighbor who's an insurance officer and he's like, "Listen, Todd, 
This is what I do for a living. You have to get off the skateboard. Like you are definitely, this is not safe financially. This is not safe for you physically. Plus, this is not your thing. And I was like, this is why I like doing it. Like it's just like I know that I have to like I have to train my body how to like bend my knees and kind of just be fluid. And that's not my style of how I walk through the world. That is the opposite of the ambitious part is I'm very good at picking up heavy things and throwing them around. You know, whether it's weights or shot puts or whatever it is. This is what I, football players, this is what this is what my body is designed for. But I'm intentionally doing the thing I'm not good at because it's there's something there's, there's something very growth oriented about building the part of the matrix in your personality that is at, at like level two on a 10 point scale. That's flexibility and agility for me. For someone else, it's, it's physical strength and emotional strength that happens there. And when you can work with some of those weaknesses and play with them, not only does it make you good at something that you weren't good at before, it's sort of, when you get back to this level of wholeness, it sort of fleshes out a larger, more complex, expansive self of you no longer define yourself as this is not a thing that's part of my personality. I'm not good with my emotions. I'm not good with my body in physical space. And a lot of people do this as adults, as they'll just say, listen, intellectual stuff's not my thing. So these kind of conversations, I'm not good at them. I'm like, what do you mean you're, you're not good at them? We're, we're just, you know, we're just having a conversation about what will artificial intelligence be like in, you know, 10, 15 years. We're just, we're just imagining. There's no right or wrong answer. But there's some people that abandon these kind of conversations because they don't define themselves as being the intellectual type. And what I would recommend from this wholeness angle is play around in these kind of little territories if if they're entertaining and stimulating for you, irrespective of how good you are, because you're not just going to kind of find a potential new enclave for you to play in or a new playground, is that you're also building this tolerance and this ability to kind of be more flexible in that you can work well in more different situations. I think of the book Art of Insubordination and Curious as being in some ways complementary because the idea of a principled rebel for organizations, organizations need people like this in order to stimulate new ideas, in order to discover new paths and so forth. But those individuals, they tend to thrive in organizations when they're surrounded by people who are curious. It seems like you need curious people in order for the rebels to survive. Rebels might not always be the most curious people. They may be just be kind of stubborn. Laser-focused, <laughs> you know. cantankerous curmudgeons, yeah. Exactly. But in order for them to make a difference, they have to somehow stimulate curiosity overcome the resistance that people would have to the ideas that they're proposing. If there's one thing which is about stimulating curiosity in yourself, but the other is like, how do you stimulate curiosity in, in other people? How can you cultivate an environment in which curiosity is the dominant way of being? I mean, I think we, we sometimes get it wrong. Google did these studies which showed that psychological safety is, is super important. But I think we misunderstand that because part of what psychological safety is, is the ability to speak up and the ability to raise questions and the ability to challenge the status quo. But for a lot of organizations, they perceive this as never having to have your status quo challenged, right? You know, we're going to create a safe space where you are protected from any kind of criticism. You know, you're protected from any kind of disagreement. You're protected from any kind of discomfort. And it seems to me that in order for you to have the, the psychological safety to speak up, it means you have to have license to run the risk of creating discomfort in, in other people. So how do we, if we're trying to create psychological safety, do we have to also coach people on curiosity and coach them on dealing with discomfort and restraining their, the anxiety that would normally arise when they encounter these disagreements? I mean, the quick answer is yes, but let me go back to the Google Aristotle project because I, I, I like your angle that you're taking, which is if your organization is psychologically safe and you have recruited and retained people that all think similarly and have the same political value system or the same approach to, to life and the same background, well, you can have psychological safety, but where's the infusion of, of innovative, interesting ideas going to come from? 
if you were a Hollywood producer and you only spent time with people that lived in Hollywood and were successful in Hollywood, where are the interesting characters going to come from? Where's where's the hero's journey that you're going to uncover? I mean, you have to be, have someone that's like, someone has exposure to adversity and, and poverty and, and life difficulties and assaults and bullying and all the problems in life. You need to have psychological safety, but before that, you need a reservoir of people that think differently and have different backgrounds and have this ability to have minority dissent in the first place. And I think it's one of the things that organizations miss is even when they look for diversity, to some degree, it's, yeah, diverse, but here's our values. Here's what we care about in our website. These are the positions that we hold. These are the nonprofits that we donate money to. So, Make sure that you notice this before the interview and say yes to all these things or else you're not going to get – I mean they're not going to say that, but you're not going to get the job. But really you want someone that's like, you know, I'm kind of not into what you guys – I like your general thing that you're producing, but I don't think like you. I have total different nonprofits that I'm interested in. You love recycling. I could care less about it, but it's it's independent of the job that you want to hire me for and the skills that are relevant for this job. So in terms of – Cultivating a good receptive audience to dissenting ideas or original ideas, we could think about it at the individual level, like what can we do as individuals, and we could think about it as the norms of the group. And I really think that the greatest opportunity for organizations is the largest, most powerful interventions in groups are altering the levers of what is typical and acceptable social behavior. So most organizations, they reward people for being stars. So what was your performance? And when you have your, your evaluations of how you're faring, it's about what did you do with your time each week, each month, over the course of a year. And what few organizations do is they reward the teams. Now, a, a lot of athletic teams do this where they, they reward like if, you know, if if professional soccer teams, they, you know, they move up the ranks in terms of the World Cup or in the, you know, win the title, the team, everyone on the team gets proceeds from winning the title. When you move away from sports and you work at, you know, a regular fast food restaurant, you know, uh, a dollar store or you work at Amazon, you don't get a profit and promotion if your team does well. But the research is very clear that if you create norms where the incentives occur and how the group performs, all of a sudden those dissenters with the original ideas that can really ramp up new ways of doing things that are more efficiently and more effectively, like it takes less time to do something, but it's going to have a little bit of a starting cost. Like the, the initial cost of changing is annoying. Like once you learn how to do Excel, it's really hard to learn a new system. Switching from PowerPoint to Keynote is a stressful thing to learn a new technology. But if they have an idea to do this, you're going to think more carefully about it because now you've got skin in the game with the dissenter. If you don't reward cooperative efforts and you work, reward competitive efforts, well, now the dissenter is a problem. They're saying, my idea is going to make you work harder in the next few months with this innovation. But three months from now, I am gonna, I'm arguing that your performance is going to be better and you're going to have a better life. You're going to say, you know what? I don't need three months of misery. It's not worth it. I'm already making money. I'm already on my path to moving up the social hierarchy here. And so to me, th th this is a, it's a simple avenue for enhancing curiosity is that to what degree can people be tied to the quality of the ideas and not focus so much on the messengers? In sports, I think the notion of discomfort is something that is well understood, right? I mean, if you want to build muscle mass, you're going to have to go through some pain, right? I mean, they're, they're, your, your muscles are going to hurt. If you want to develop physical agility, you know, you're going to actually go through some discomfort as well. You talk about emotional agility. Why would we think that developing emotional agility would be a, a painless process? We don't seem to have drills that we can go through to develop this emotional agility. We, we don't seem to map on over this understanding of how you get good at something into the emotional domain. Why, why is that? The metaphor is, I think, once you see it articulated, it, it's fairly compelling, but we don't seem to put it into practice. So there is a researcher, I forgot her name, in Australia who kind of uncovered this asymmetry where parents will go and complain to teachers and administrators in schools of saying, listen, my kid should be in these 
high honor classes, these advanced placement classes, because my kid is, I see them at home. They read at a high level. They ask great questions. They're smart. And they really, and they're, they're pushing them to like, you know, to go into more difficult, more challenging classes. But they do the exact opposite emotionally and socially. As soon as their kid has a problem and where they have an argument, not a fist fight, but just an argument in class, that teacher is not coming in to say, listen, I want them spending time with older kids who are even more challenged to interact with. They're like, listen, can you get that kid really far away and sit six seats away from my kid? Because I don't want my kid to have any social friction whatsoever. So there's this emotional safeguarding and there's this lack of awareness where we really prize the intellectual challenge, but we really don't want the social and emotional challenge. So you're definitely recognizing a sociological problem here. And it's actually not that hard to create exercise to train people. I mean, I often give workshops where actually I have people on teams sit across from each other and I I play music in the background so other people can't hear their conversations. And I'm like, listen, In the next 30 seconds, I want you to really carefully and compassionately, I want you to tell them the things that they can improve in themselves. And before we start this exercise, if you're the recipient, I want you to know you're likely to get upset and angry. So for these 30 seconds, you can't say anything back. And I want you to try to not to take it and tolerate it. But I want you to see, hey, what in this information that might be worded in an awkward way, is there something useful for me to gain? And I want you to tap into what does it feel like? What's your body doing? So we deconstruct all of the experience of getting this criticism there. And they're not allowed to verbalize back. So we can't have a back and forth. And what people realize is this level of discomfort is high. But the more interesting part is They are so uncomfortable experiencing that physical discomfort that they wanted to turn away. They closed their eyes. They stopped listening. They hovered on the first criticism and didn't listen to the other criticisms over the course of the 30 seconds. Is that people people are unwilling to absorb just just a single compassionate feedback about kind of how they improve themselves. And I think if this became a regular behavior in organizations, and again, you have to have the compassionate curiosity. You have to have the willingness of benevolent intent when you're doing these things. When you add these pieces to this kind of regular seeking and giving of constructive feedback, people start to become much more emotionally agile. Now, I think probably the most controversial part of your work that I read was the defense that you had of the dark triad. It's kind of hard to defend these things, I guess, but it made me think quite a bit because I think of myself as a curious person. I think of myself as somebody who just goes right into discomfort, but I'm somewhat conflict avoidant in my personal and professional world. If you know, I encounter somebody who I have a problem with, I prefer to just avoid them going forward. And that means that I'm missing out on all sorts of opportunities. If I were to be more aggressive and more forceful and more conflict-oriented, I could probably derive more from these relationships, professional and personal. So how can one make the case that there's a non-zero optimal amount of narcissism, that there's a non-zero optimal amount of Machiavellianism, that there's a non-zero optimal amount of, of psychopathy? Yeah, I mean, thankfully, we have a big scientific body of research that shows that these are beneficial. I mean, one of my favorite studies, it's, the title is Two Narcissists is Better Than One. It was published in Personality and Social Psychology Bulletin. And it showed that when you have one person high narcissism in a group, that group tends to be have lower intellectual performance, worse decisions in their decision-making process, and they're less creative. But if you have two people that are high narcissism, it actually, the group is, performs better. They have more creative ideas, but the cohesion goes down. It goes back to the trade-offs. So there's less harmony, less positivity, but they function better. Now, why is that the case that two people work who are high narcissism, but not one? One person is an outlier. They're just the black sheep. We just kind of attack them as, our group is fine. We're having a good time. You're still in the mojo. You are reducing the speed that we can accomplish things. Think about like, think about a bunch of firefighters. Right, their 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 task is once that siren rings, they are going to the scene of a fire or a cat or a kid stuck in a tree. They got to get in that truck quickly, and they got to make sure they don't get into an accident. And they don't want to make any property damage when they get there. So harmony is really useful. 
if you get one person high narcissism that's kind of really arrogant and thinking that they have all the answers, you push them to the side. Say, listen, like you just kind of you ostracize them, push them. When two are there, it basically it offers a realization is that maybe some of the ways that we do things are dysfunctional because it's the way we've always done it. The beauty of someone that's a little bit high narcissism is that they feel that they have the right to override whatever the rules and the norms are of that group. So if the norm is is that you do seniority of who gets into the fire truck and then the person with the most experience gets to drive the fire truck and the people with the least amount of experience have to pull the hose out, well, that's that's a, a, a typical norm in a first-line responder environment. But wouldn't, why wouldn't we have it where the strongest person the strongest person for the task of, of lifts up the hose with ease as opposed to the newbie that comes in there, the newcomer who's probably potentially one of the weakest people that comes in there. When you ask people, why did this norm exist? People say that's the way it's always been. The beauty of someone that's one or two two people with high narcissism is they're like, I'm not following those rules. They don't make any freaking sense. That happens there. And it just doesn't open the creative window for that exact thing. It makes people ask, huh, what other things are we doing just because it's what we've always done at the firehouse? I mean, this is why there were no women pilots in the Air Force and in the Navy. And this is why there were no women in the infantry and why it took over 200 years for women to appear as students at Yale University. It's just, well, that's, it's an all-male school. This is the way it's always been until someone had the chutzpah, multiple people to say, listen, but why does that make sense when we know that there's no difference between men and women in their cognitive abilities? There are differences elsewhere, sex differences, but not in cognitive ability on average. And all of a sudden, you get multiple high narcissists that are in a situation, a little bit disagreeable, push ideas around a bit. It's, it's a little bit of like kindling for getting society to move and evolve in different directions. So insubordination, I mean, you can't be concerned about fitting in if you're going to be an insubordinator. You have to have some, you know, we talk about how overconfidence is, is a bad thing, but in small doses, it's kind of necessary in order for these folks to make a difference. Do you want to raise your kids to be insubordinates? What's the price they're going to pay for that? Well, I like the way that you were going, is we could think of it as momentary states or the personality or disposition of a person. So I would say focus less on what is a rebellious person like and versus in this moment, can you challenge and question what seems to be a flimsy, crappy, or absurd idea at the time? So have the ability to inhabit the role where appropriate, right? To step into that role. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so when you think of it from that perspective, would you want your kid to sit on the sidelines and take a step backwards as someone's being emotionally, you know, bullied on the playground? Or would you want your kid to say like, hey, listen, leave that guy alone, leave that girl alone. And so when you think of it from as a, a momentary state, who doesn't want their kid to become heroic in moments? And if it ends up being that they see a teacher in third grade, and they're kind of, you know, drinking it from the little whiskey bottle, kind of like those, you know, old 70s and 80s films from their desk, and they notice that they're kind of barely able to stand up, and your kid is willing to say something to another teacher, like, listen, I think something's wrong with our teacher that happens there. But kudos to your kid. Like, that's, like, I want, I want to not just raise my kids, I want to raise a generation where when they see the problematic elements in the social world and the system is that they're willing to voice it. And what I, what, what I want to do is offer them the tools of how can you do it effectively so you're not dismissed too prematurely. So if it comes, you know, we know when it comes to, to bullying, one of the greatest strategies for reducing bullying in a school environment or in, a, in an adult organization is first bring in, have one-on-one -on -one conversations with the socially attractive people, the popular people, get them on board have them point out to them what the problems are ask how you know how can how can we together you and me like figure out how to reduce this when they're on board these are the type of people that people listen to first and you could change the norms where people don't yell at each other and give unnecessarily tough questions when people present an idea in a work meeting just to show they're smart the goal should be you ask tough questions because you want the ideas to improve but not to improve when it's about your social standing, and you try to use this as an arbitrary metric where you get to showcase what you're made of, that's a bad work environment. So to bring people in 
is think about who has status and power that can make sure that the minority members of a group, they get leverage and their talent is brought to its full potential. Well, it seems that a lot of people believe that to be an insubordinator, all you need to do is complain. So, you know, a lot of times people can post bad reviews on some website or they can put comments on somebody's Instagram page, maybe do it in an anonymous way. What I've found is that with my students, if my younger students have a problem with something I'm doing, I usually don't find out until I look at the evaluations at the end of the semester. Whereas with the older students, you know, they'll come up to me and they'll say, hey, listen, you know, you need to fix this, right? And I'm always so grateful for the folks who actually come to me in in person. And it's more likely to make a a difference in a timely manner. But that that seems to require a whole lot more courage than just to ding somebody on, on an evaluation or on a Yelp page or something. Yeah. So think about it from you know, what can you and other other people do to kind of facilitate that older student mentality? I mean, one is, can you create like some opportunity where they can anonymously provide their complaints, concerns, and beefs before the end of the semester? And then how can you incentivize people to do it more is when you get those ideas that really hit hard is you read them in the next class and you thank yeah. them and explain how you're going to modify your behavior and say, listen, I'm taking this stuff seriously. I'm not trying to figure out who wrote this. I mean, and you could even say, this wasn't said artfully. I'm going to admit it hurt and stung me when you said it this way, but this is what I'm going to do to change my behavior. I'm going to do this X, Y, and Z. And it's all because you were brave enough to put it in there. So like more feedback. And also I want you to use this classroom as a starting point is that you will do this in your adult life. And when you're in organizations, in the workplaces, is that you're not going to complain on on Twitter about someone like and actually name them and try to kind of bring them down and destroy them. Ask of ask with nonviolent communication, what is the action that you want and ask for it. Now if they repeatedly don't respond, now you're in a different situation. But first you have to try. So, you know, at my business school, we have a slogan called question the status quo. It's one of our defining principles, but it's easier to question someone else's (laughs) status quo than it is to kind of question your own. So when you are running an organization and I consider a family to be like an organization, perhaps a more important organization for many people, how do you foster a spirit of insubordination? How do you foster that in your children? And do you think that it really is overlapping with fostering a sense of curiosity? I mean, are are they rooted fundamentally in something similar or are they more compliments? In other words, if you foster a sense of curiosity, you're going to be more tolerant of the folks that are insubordinate. So I think for the target of the principled rebellion, as well as those that are prepared to rebel, there's like a little bento box of, of, of fortitudes you want there. You want some curiosity, you want some courage, you want some intellectual humility, and you want some perspective getting. And the last one's also pretty important is that to get the perspective of, of try try to get the perspective of the people that are rebelling against you of, you know, know, do they have benevolent intent? Is it malevolent? Are they projecting their own problems onto you? Or is it something that you did? And so what, I mean, one of the things that I do is regularly, so when I teach classes, the first two classes, all I talk about is the culture in the classroom. And I wrote an article in Inside Higher Ed about 10 principles for productive conflict. And I go through them. of like, listen, in this classroom, everything. You should be questioning the scientists that you read. You should be questioning things that I say. You should question whether if I pull out a number and talk about some study, you should ask of like, hey, like that doesn't sound like legitimate. It sounds like you made that up. I respond problematically and defensively every single time it's on me. And there, and sometimes every once in a while, I will be defensive in response to the feedback. But the beauty is, is, and this is in every organization, you get a mea culpa. You go to sleep, you come to work the next day, and you get to say, listen, all hands on deck. I want to apologize. Jessica, she pointed out the fact that she thought that I was making up this, this scientific fact. I kind of blew up and got a little like my voice was raising and I got upset about these things. I said she was wrong. Guess what? She was right. Like it ended up being like for some reason – for whatever reason, I apologize. I must have been having a bad day, but whatever it is, unacceptable on my part, I will try to reduce the number of times it happens in the future. Those little mea culpa moments, that is how you create a psychological safe workplace where when people are going to complain or offer constructive criticism, 
not only are they not going to get shot down, but you're going to put them on a pedestal and be like, listen, you just trained me. Like you are altering the way that I relate to people in this moment because I screwed up and I'm kind of acknowledging I'm, I'm going to try to improve because of you. That reinforcement structure is exactly what leads more people to actually produce ideas and, and generate dissent. When you squelch dissent, that's the, the exact opposite effect. All of a sudden, all the problems will be there. You're just not going to hear about them. I love that. Do you also hand that to your kids, that same statement? Oh, my God. I mean, if, if we were doing the podcast together with my three daughters, they would just they could tell story after story of how many times I apologize. I mean, it's half of my parenting is apologizing for bad moves. Right. I have a thing in my class where if anybody finds an error on my slides, I, I give them a dollar. Right. That's the sort of it's, it's more symbolic. Obviously, it's not enough to make anyone rich, but it sends a message that, hey, you know, I'm going to reward you if you can correct me. And I probably need to expand that. <laughs> I'll give you a dollar anytime you, you know, highlight some kind of faux pas of any kind. Todd, look, this has been great. I really appreciate you joining me. All of these books, I think, are worth checking out. I think they're compliments to one another. So anyway, The Upside of Your Dark Side, Curious, and The Art of Insubordination. Thanks so much. So good to be here. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.